Hello, and welcome to Securing Sexuality, the podcast where we discuss the intersection of intimacy and information security. I'm Wolf Gorlick. He's a hacker, and I'm Stephanie Gorlick. She's a sex therapist. And together we're going to discuss what safe sex looks like in a digital age. Today we're looking at protecting yourself as a therapist, right? Protecting yourself as a therapist who has trans clients or protecting yourself as a trans therapist. Um, there's been some things going down. Yeah, I mean, I know that the issues around gender identity and gender affirming care have been in the news a lot recently, but but the stuff we're talking about today isn't just limited to those populations either. This is this is content, and these are tips that are really relevant for anybody that works in um, in a field where you're working with marginalized populations, or where the work you do is perhaps considered a bit more controversial, that can vary from state to state, right? What's what's controversial and shocking in Alabama probably isn't in California and vice versa. Uh, but we, we cannot change the fact that no matter who you are or where you're practicing, for a lot of therapists, it really feels like the world that we are practicing in has changed. And we are getting more and more questions from people in my world about how to do the basic things that let us simply do our jobs and, you know, help our clients. And it's been a really interesting and rather terrifying shift to see. And I know that that's a conversation that you've been having more and more as people, you know, become aware of this podcast, as we attend conferences, as you get invited to events, all of a sudden therapists all around the country are reaching out to you and asking for help in keeping themselves safe. Yeah, this is this is very true. And I spent oh, I want to say a month, maybe maybe 6 weeks reaching out to other therapists, reaching out to educators, reaching out to people uh in my world in computer security, reaching out to uh activists in in the trans community, having some conversations around what's going on and what can people do and there is a lot of folks who are looking for ways to to keep themselves safe as they go about uh, doing their doing their work. So we are all of two, three minutes in, and we're already talking about the importance of safety. So let me ask for those who might not be in the U.S. right now or who might not work with some of these more targeted populations, what, what are we talking about? What are the risks that people are bringing to you these days? Yeah, there is a a lot of pressure against folks who are providing care to uh, trans people, and you know what tends to come into mind is Project Veritas, right? So Project Veritas uh, made its name uh, around uh, the abortion discussion is now weighted into into the trans issues. They are a form of gotcha journalism. They pretend to be someone else so they can record folks and get things uh, on uh, on the record, and then they release media in their minds, hopefully uh, steer the conversation. And earlier this year, around April, there was a, a push by them to you know expose information around puberty blockers and everything else, and they had talked to social workers and hospitals and and children's uh, medical centers. So that tends to be where a lot of folks start. That's where I started. But in having the conversations 
what was interesting was what was coming up much more often, um, I'd say maybe three out of four times, what was coming up much more often was the risks around the internet mob, right? Uh, what some are calling uh, stochastic terrorism. Um, I'm not sure how to spell that <laughs> off the top of my head, but that's what some are calling it, where you've got these, these uh, accounts like libs of TikTok, uh, like gays against groomers, like people who own major social media sites, uh, who pick up ideas, broadcast it, um, take things out of context, and try to whip up a mob. And sometimes that ends up in dark corners of the internet. Sometimes that ends up uh, ha having a physical component uh, through groups like Proud Boys. Sometimes it doesn't go anywhere, thankfully. The risk that keeps coming up when I was having these conversations again and again is what happens when this mob turns its attention onto you. Yeah, and and that idea of stochastic terror is is something that went from a term nobody had ever heard to being like, oh yeah, of course, that's what's happening right now. And for those that aren't familiar with that term, what stochastic terror is, is it is the public demonization of a person or a group of people with um, the result that violence is incited against them. And the, tr the trick to stochastic terrorism is that the, the person engaging in this messaging isn't calling for violence. So they are not saying people should rise up and go hurt this other person over there. They are simply pointing out how horrible and terrible and awful that person is over there with the understanding that people who are opposed to horrible, terrible, awful things will take action as necessary. So it is insidious and has become increasingly pervasive on social media. Um, you had mentioned Project Veritas, and I honestly don't even want to give them the dignity of calling them journalists, because journalists theoretically are approaching things from a position of neutrality and from, you know, like the inquiry of learning and reporting on a subject. And Project Veritas is really one of the original sort of groups that did this because they start with this idea that people are doing something that is immoral, according to them, um, whether that is voting rights or abortion access or LGBT inclusion or any number of things. And then they create these, these trap scenarios to prove that point and broadcast that message to people people who then will take action to oppose these behaviors, whether those behaviors, again, are voting rights or abortion access or um, gender affirming care. So it is a really insidious and really, unfortunately, growingly common topic and issue on social media, especially since so many of us are getting our primary news and information from social media these days. And a lot of therapists, myself included, are, are worried about it because once somebody sort of puts out this idea or this message about who you are and what you're doing and why, it is almost impossible to put the genie back in the social media bottle. And the the online sort of brigading or or trolling has become heavily weaponized. And I think that we're seeing that more and more, not just from quote unquote activist groups, but even from elected officials and people that historically would have been perhaps more temperate in their speech. Um, so let me ask you this. How do we as clinicians who, who aren't necessarily, you know, Google searching everybody that, that comes to our website or who sends us a new client inquiry, how, how can we 
prevent this? How can we manage the the inquiries that we get every day to kind of weed out the people who are genuinely seeking mental health care, whatever form that takes, from the people who might be trying to figure out if we're doing something that they personally would prefer that we not do? feel like that's a very strange thing to say, but I have received messages from people who just get this sort of vicarious delight from being cruel online. How do we recognize the good faith clients from the bad faith actors, Wolf? Well, I think what you just said is really the answer to that. When people are signing your up on your forms, right? When they're reaching out to you and you, they're using the contact me form, when they're doing these sort of things, Generally, if they are abusive, they're going to be very clear that they're abusive up front. You're going to know it well in advance. But it's a safety method and a mechanism to be able to know up front that these people are trying to do something they shouldn't. I think part of it is, and I'm going to come back to this idea a few different times as we talk, but when you think about security, there's a, a, two main things we're trying to do. We're trying to add space. Uh, and we're trying to add time. And by space, I mean we want enough distance from you and someone who's potentially an adversary so that you have time to move, to react, to do something. Uh, by time, it's giving you the time to react, the time to respond, making sure it takes a significant amount of time for them to reach you directly. And of course, those two things go, go hand in hand. And we're adding space and we're adding time uh, to do harm reduction. The, the number one thing in cybersecurity uh, in this discussion, or pretty much in any discussion, is that there's no perfectly safe way to make this. You you need to reach out to your clients. And the more friction you add, the, the fewer clients who need you, who need help, who are concerned, who are already on their side, very, very, uh, I would imagine, apprehensive to reach out to someone they don't know about what's on their mind. The more friction you inject in it, the, the less likely they are to get to care. I think it begins with having those screening forms and really just trusting your instincts. This, uh, this person does not, is not coming across in a way that I can help them. This person might not be acting in good faith. I mean, in some ways, that is a part of the work of any mental health provider. We have to be able to know um, whether or not we are able to help a client. But a lot of people work in agencies where they don't have that luxury. If somebody's working in a community mental health setting or in a hospital setting or in a clinic setting, they don't get to choose their clients. So they have an obligation to their employer to take whoever is assigned to them. And they don't necessarily get to say, um, my spidey senses are tingling. Let me offer you a couple of referrals instead. Clinicians at our core, no matter what our degrees are or who we work with, have an ethical obligation to be available to the people that seek us. And you're right, there have been times when I have referred somebody out because of the nature of my work and maybe, you know, something they say in our intake conversation or in that sort of initial inquiry that doesn't doesn't feel right to me. That's not something ethically that I can do all the time. And there are lots of my professional colleagues who don't have that option really at all, depending upon the setting that they work in. So what steps can, can providers take to minimize their exposure from the outset to perhaps, as much as we can, um, prevent these situations from arising at all? In uh, these scenarios that you mentioned, 
it's a empowering the uh, the therapist to trust their sense, and b moving that screening process, moving that front door out a little bit so there's more space so that we have more time, and having having people trained on what sounds right and what doesn't, processing the inquiries and handling that first step. So you're right. I mean, in larger large organizations and computing mental health and whatnot, that uh, is going to fall on the organizations to really beef up their inquiry process. One of the things that I think was a little bit frustrating for both of us over the last couple of weeks as you were preparing for these conversations was it seemed like every suggestion that uh, your contacts or your sort of resource people in, in the uh, information security world would have, you would come back to me and I would say, well, yeah, we can't legally do that. We're not allowed to do that as mental health providers. And it became maybe, maybe, maybe just for me, but I feel like it was reciprocal, uh, a frustration point that every, every idea that other people could implement to protect themselves I kept having to shoot down and say no for one reason or another for this insurance requirement or for that licensure requirement, you know, that's just not an option for clinicians. And at the same time, that made me feel incredibly frustrated because it really revealed how exposed mental health providers in America are, uh, regardless of who we're working with. It was it was a very uncomfortable sort of series of conversations we've had over the last few weeks. It, it was, and I agree, uh, you know, I think there needs to be a greater degree of uh, advocacy uh, on behalf of, you know, clinicians and, and frontline therapists with their agencies, with their licensing boards, with their, with their state uh, oversight, um, with, uh, with the Center for Medicaid and Medicare, right? The folks who are doing the MPI number. There needs to be a, a greater degree of emphasis on educating these groups about how these risks have changed. But I also think like telehealth practices have made it easier because at least back to time and space, at least you're not necessarily in the room with a person. You're not necessarily in a situation where um, they're right there with you. You've got a bit of distance again to, again, to provide greater degree of harm reduction. I agree to a point, and I think that it's gotten better. Up until very recently, Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services made you list the full address of wherever you were physically practicing, uh, which for telehealth providers often meant their home addresses. And it was not until I would say the last six months or so, because, you know, as a clinician, I have to reattest my, my information every quarter. And it was only this last go round that they had added a button that said, if you are 100% telehealth, if your clients are never, ever, ever coming to where you practice, click here and all we will show is your city and state which, you know, they're still collecting the, the other information. And I've been married to you long enough to know that um, wherever data is collected, it has the potential to be um, shared or stolen. 
But that felt like a good first step, because at least for those um, in my world who are 100% telehealth, we can now at least hide our home addresses in a way that we weren't able to do this time last year. So it is getting a little bit better in that respect. But what are some other things people can be doing to kind of, you know, obfuscate or or protect their information from, um, I hate to say it, but their clients as well as anybody else that's out there? Well, yeah, the the address is a, a key one. Making sure your address is not posted, making sure it's it's not available. Even the the city and state, I think, is a little bit better. But of course, there are certainly ways to still find uh, your your full address if your name is on the house, <laughs> for example, or if your um, name is on your business paperwork. One of the things that uh, back to adding space, one of the uh, really nice pieces of advice I was given was make sure you have a lawyer who's following, filing all your business paperwork, not in your name, but in the lawyer's name. Therefore, there is a uh, some space there between finding your business paperwork and immediately being able to find your full name and find your address and everything else. So there's you know certain things like that that can be done. Taking off your telephone number uh, from your website and your, your therapist practice page. Um, and if you do have a number, right, having a, a separate number, like a sideline number or a Google voice number, uh, again, so we're, we're adding some space. I do like um, one of the things that I've always appreciated about psychology today is on my professional profile, you know, I give them my business phone number, but that's not the phone number that shows up for potential clients. Uh, Psychology Today actually generates a phone number on my provider page that when people call, rings through to me, but doesn't actually give up my business line. And that is, you know, something that not everybody likes Psychology Today for various reasons, but something that being a bigger service provider lets them do that I've always thought has been a nice service for those of us that, that use that for our marketing. Yeah, that's a perfect example. What else can people be doing? I know that it doesn't necessarily make sense to say, don't mention who you work with or what you do online, right? Because if I have a client that's looking for gender affirming care, my website needs to tell them I do gender affirming care. But by making that information public, I'm also sharing that with potential bad actors or people who feel that I shouldn't be providing gender affirming care. So so how can clinicians sort of walk that tightrope between marketing our services and letting the people who need us know that we're out there without necessarily exposing ourselves to risk in these weirdly chaotic and increasingly fascist times. When I started going down this path and trying to collect this information for you and, and you know for your colleagues, uh, my first thought was, well, this is very straightforward, along with removing you know, your phone number and your address and any personally identifiable information from your professional websites. Uh, and along with perhaps obfuscating or having a secondary number and a contact form and have an email address, um, just simply remove trans. <laughs> I mean, if people are searching on that word, remove that word. One of the ways that my viewpoint has shifted in this conversation, I don't think that's a 
good idea. And, and here's why. I was speaking with the executive director of one of the state groups in the uh, Equality Federation. Uh, I would give them a shout out, but I did not ask <laughs> their permission for a shout out when speaking with them. So I, I won't. Uh, but if you're listening to this, thank you very much. And she said something very impactful to me. She said, look, taking down trans and erasing trans from the internet is a win for adversarial groups like gays against groomers or libs of TikTok or Veritas or any of these folks. It's a, a win for those groups, right? That is their that is their goal is to effectively marginalize uh, trans folks and, and to uh, reduce and remove representation. And we have to keep an eye on what is it we're trying to protect. In cybersecurity, we can oftentimes run into this problem where what we do for security is counter to what we need to do for protection, right? Like, I'm going to lock everything down, and now people can't uh, get their job done or can't get into the building or can't get out of applications. And if we remember, hey, the purpose of this organization is to get your job done, we're, we're running counter to protecting, even though we're providing security. Uh, I was reminded of that in this conversation uh, because fundamentally what we're trying to do is, is protect trans people, right? We're trying to protect our, our friends and colleagues and clients uh, who are just trying to live their lives. So I don't think we should remove it. I do acknowledge and agree that it uh, having trans on your list of services, just like having kink on your list of services and everything else, increases your risk. Uh, but from a harm reduction model, we need to keep an eye on what we're trying to protect. We need to stand strong. And we need to make sure that uh, we're not creating a situation where you know, we're pushing trans people off the internet. And, you know, as I'm listening to you, that raises an interesting point in my mind, because at first, my first thought is uh, strength in numbers. And rather than taking gender-affirming care off of our websites, maybe more people need to be putting it on to make it harder to find those of us who do the work. But then it becomes a forest for the tree situation, right? And if people, you know, we, we think about using pronouns and everybody shares their pronouns now to make it safer and more inclusive for those who need to, to do so. And my first thought was, well, if we all say we provide the service, then that protects those of us who do. But then it becomes a forest for the tree situation. And how do the people seeking this care find the ones that actually do versus the ones that are just trying to be a good ally and provide coverage for the others? So it really, I mean, it's a difficult situation. There's not a lot of clear cut answers here. And it becomes incredibly frustrating for our clients. Uh, one of the ways that a lot of people are finding their therapists these days is social media, right? They look for the clinicians who are talking about these issues online, on Instagram, on heaven forbid, TikTok, on any number of platforms. But the same situation is true there. You know, when, when somebody is a public facing person talking about 
issues that are having a cultural moment, positively or negatively, they expose themselves to people who have opinions about those topics. Uh, the talk I gave at ASEC last week, somebody posted on social media and said I looked like the caricature of a liberal pedo groomer, which is not not an observation I've gotten before. So, you know, whenever we are posting about our work on social media, we run the risk of encountering those bad actors or at the very least those negative comments. How can clinicians that, that do take a more advocacy perspective to this, who do want to be sharing their opinions on social media, whether because they believe in the cause or because they want people in need to find them, how can they protect themselves? Let's talk about proactive and, and reactive protection. From a proactive perspective, there's a couple different things, right? We can we can add space, which is what I keep coming back to. Your your point about psychology today with a different telephone number tying to your main number is one that comes to mind. Uh, have a different account. And I know a lot of folks in, in your world already do this, but you have your your professional forward-looking, uh, forward-facing account, and you have your, your personal account with a different name. Uh, if you have a moment, make sure you can run your, your post by somebody just to sort of pick at it a little bit and see if there's something that they could give uh, you some advice on about what to do to lock it down. You know, if there's a different way to say what you're trying to say or a different way to communicate it, that may be a little more safer, a little bit less likely to be picked up by one of these groups. So I, I'm always a big fan of the social media uh, edit and feedback cycle, which uh, is not something built into these apps. We're encouraged to just click send and go. Uh, also, make sure you have your accounts locked down. We'll put in the show notes um, the article from Tall Poppy, uh, it's called An Ounce of Prevention is Worth a Pound of Cure, Digital Safety for Healthcare Workers. Uh, this is a, a resource that was made available by uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Lee Honeywell, uh, who also gave me a lot of advice on this. And it's, she provides a really good line of things to lock down your accounts to make sure they don't get stolen or compromised, you know, things like long passwords and and multi-factor. So make sure we're doing all those things. Proactive side. Uh, on the reactive side, if it happens, if if one of these accounts picks up your message, takes it out, starts blasting all over the place, uh, have a plan, right? How am I going to lock down my accounts? Um, what is what is my my plan to step off the internet for a period of time? One of the aspects of these types of attacks that works in our favor is it usually is only a couple days, right? They pick up something, they spread it around, they create a whole bunch of noise, and a couple days they moved on to something else. So if you have a good plan to go offline for say seven days, lock down your account, step away from the internet, um, take, a, take a breather, uh, do whatever sort of uh, self-care, stress management uh, activity works for you, go on a hike, take a, take a good massage, good meal, whatever it is, um, have that plan in place. So if and when it occurs, you're in a good place to to protect yourself. Uh, because again, two, three days, most likely, most likely this will blow over. Finally, if it if it does occur, if you do find yourself in the situation where you, you need to uh, figure out what to do, um, you know, there's a number of people who can can help. 
one of the folks that uh, I have sent uh, people to and one of the folks that I myself have consulted with uh, goes by the name Lockdown Your Life or LockdownYourLife.com. They have a consultation for if it is occurring, how to lock things down, how to report things, how to have a uh, response plan. It really feels like what we're saying is that there isn't a great option here, that there's no way to genuinely prevent people from being targeted online, and that there aren't necessarily solid mechanisms people can take to, to genuinely reduce their exposure. Is that a true statement, or are there things that clinicians can be doing to protect themselves proactively? Well, I think some of what we already mentioned is good in terms of that article that I highlighted. Also, you want to just reduce how much information is available online about you, right? I mentioned earlier that it's great uh, that the MPI for telehealth will no longer publish your address. However, if you have a person's name and a city and state, it's still pretty easy to find their address. Uh, part of that is because of these data brokers. This is a number of different uh, ways to to get out of data brokers. Um, if you want to get really deep and do it yourself, there's a book called Extreme Privacy, What It Takes to Disappear. Uh, that book is very thick and very technical, very detailed for the people who really, really want to make sure that they're doing all the right things and have the time uh, to do it themselves. That's usually where I point them. Uh, next up, let's say we don't want to do that. Let's start uh, a little bit less expensive, but a little bit easier. There is a website called Easy Opt-Outs. Uh, it's less expensive. It's maybe less thorough, uh, but it's a great place to start for removing your information. Uh, one step above that, so we went from just opting out to actually trying to scrub you off the internet. Uh, there's a, a tool called Delete Me. Delete Me remains one of the best options. It's a little more pricey, it's a little more expensive, uh, but they'll not only opt you out, but delete you off a whole number of different uh, sites for you. And that covers a lot of what's in that extreme privacy book as a service. Finally, you were talking earlier about uh, community mental health, about larger practices. One of the things I would really like is for organizations to view this um, as part of their responsibility, right? This is part of the responsibility of the organization to provide a good work environment, uh, a safe work environment, uh, and oftentimes that translates into physical safety, right? Um, good walls, good, good security guards, uh, clean floors, and don't forget uh, the caution wet floor signs. I think in addition to that, because we're seeing more of this online, we need to also look at services and providing these services for uh, our frontline therapists, for our frontline clinicians. Uh, I'll give you one more, one more tool for that. Uh, that would be Hush. It's a Detroit-based uh, startup. It's gohush.com. And, uh, and they provide a, a service that will run over multiple different folks in an organization. Oh, sorry, that easy opt-outs, delete me, and then hush to really reduce your footprint on the internet. So I want to ask the reverse question because all of these, all of our conversation so far has really kind of assumed that people are already practicing or are already 
setting up their websites and their profiles and their MPI numbers and all of that. What should people who are thinking about moving into uh, private practice or moving into being a therapy provider, what can people be doing from day one to to build protections around this from the get-go? Instead of trying to remove information or trying to put up walls around the stuff that I already have going as a clinician, if I were starting a new practice tomorrow, how could I build that practice to be ready for the world that we're living in right now? I like this question because oftentimes we start with, oh, remove the data. But one of the things that is oftentimes not said out loud, um, but should be should be recognized, is once data is out there, it's it can be hidden, but it's always out there forever and ever and ever. Um, I can any of these services delete me, easy opt outs, hush, extreme privacy removes it from public view, but that doesn't necessarily remove the data altogether. So I like what you're saying here, right? If we can prevent the data from going out in the first place, we're in a much better spot. If you're doing telehealth, uh, and that means you need to have a house (laughs) or a piece of land, uh, if you are buying a house uh, that will be used as a home office, and that home office will be providing uh, care that could be contested, uh, or or otherwise caught up in all this. Um, put it in a trust, a trust that's not your name, uh, that's not something that's readily uh, you know recognizable as you. Like Stephanie, you are known for your pink hair. We would not put our house in the trust called the Pink Hair Therapist. Um, that that'd be a bad idea. So put it put it in another put it in another name. When you go to file your paperwork, uh, get an attorney who can file that paperwork, so it's not filed with your name and your address. Um, when you set up your, your website, um, most of these websites will allow you to uh, do an anonymous uh, registration or have the registration through the uh, web developer. You want to do that so that people can't look up your information off the website. Uh, when you set up your email and your other services, similarly, right? Make sure that we're restricting how much information is, is put out there. And just as we go down the line from any way that people can be uh, contacted from their address to their uh, paperwork, to their uh, telephone number, to their email address, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, make sure that you are thinking through how you're going to construct your therapy practice to have those layers, right? Don't put out your email address. Have a good contact me form. And on and on it goes. And for those of us like your pink-haired wife who didn't set up our practice thinking about these things 5, 20, 50 years ago, is it possible to unring that bell? Or is there a certain amount of exposure that we just have to accept? There's always going to be a certain amount of exposure that we have to accept. This is all about harm reduction. But those sites I mentioned earlier for scrubbing and removing information will go a long way. And now the big, important, impactful question. Do you think people should be rethinking the work they do because of the times that we're living in? It's a question you know you get asked. Yes, people should absolutely be rethinking the work that they do in the times we live in. Really? That surprises me. And doubling down and helping more of the people who need it. There you go. That's the Wolfgang I was waiting for. (laughs) 
All right. Um, any any last thoughts or tips? I know this was a time when I've just been like picking your brain about everything you've been reading up on and, and consulting on over the last couple weeks and months. Is there anything that, that I should have asked you about that I didn't think to? Uh, you know, we've talked about secure messaging here in Signal in the past. We've talked about secure email and things like ProtonMail in the past. Another thing I think is really important is whenever possible, um, using email services that will delete the message or not store it. So think things like Hushmail. Hushmail for therapists is fantastic. Uh, or move it out of email altogether into uh, your EMR, EHR, something like Simple Practice. Um, and And when we think about email, when we think about case notes, when we think about process and progress notes within case notes, what I was saying earlier applies here again. Don't write anything down that we're going to have to delete. Be very, very conscientious about what you write down. You told me you have a, a good line that you tell your supervisees about case notes, right? What, is, what was that? When I was training as a little baby therapist, I was told don't write anything in your case notes that you would not want to look your client in the eye and read to them from a witness stand. And I think that that still holds true today. No matter what population you work with, whether you are doing couples work or not, uh, whether you are doing substance use work or not, whether you are working with high-risk populations or not, you never know what crazy circumstances are going to come up that can result in a subpoena um, or a court order. And so it is always, always better to write your case notes with your client's safety in mind. Keep your progress notes separate from your process notes in states where you are allowed to differentiate between the two and never put anything in writing you would not read on a witness stand. Yes, yes, yes. In this time we find ourselves in where information is being weaponized, be very, very careful about the detail and the documentation you provide uh, that could be used as a weapon. I think we covered a lot. Uh, <laughs> are you ready to wrap up, love of my life? All right. With that said, do not let the times we live in scare you away from doing the work you were born to be doing. Be bold, be brave, stand up for yourselves, stand up for your clients, and know that like every other cultural moment, this too shall pass. Thank you so much for tuning in to Securing Sexuality, your source for information you need to protect yourself your relationships, and today, your clients. Securing Sexuality is brought to you by the Bound Together Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit. From the bedroom to the cloud, we're here to help you navigate safe sex in a digital age. So be sure to check out our website, securingsexuality.com, for links to all the information we discussed here today, as well as information about our live conference in Detroit. And join us again for more fascinating conversations about the intersection of sexuality and technology. Have a great week.